Today uh, we begin part three, part three of our journey through the book of Esther. And uh, all these sermons are, are online. Uh, you can subscribe to Lynchburg City Church podcast. They usually go on on Mondays. Um, but we are in part three today, and our first real bad guys introduced. And I'm a big fan of bad guys. It o- they always make the story that much more interesting. Um, I, I tell people, people ask me, like, what was your favorite Star Wars movie? I'm like, oh, Rogue One. Like, why? I'm like, because everybody got killed at the end, so. Their <laughs> yeah, so. chief antagonist is introduced today, Haman. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Haman shows up, and he's introduced as the Agagite. It's an intentional reference by the narrator to create this tension, really to illustrate this already tension that has existed for centuries between the people of Israel and the Amalekites. In fact, you go back to Genesis chapter 17, 15. Moses writes and foretells how the Lord would be at war with them from generation to generation. There is this ancient feud between Israel and the Amalekites. And it's first reported in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Agag is the king of the Amalekites. And King Saul, he's the king of Israel. He's a Benjaminite. And his father is Kish. And he's directed to go fight the Amalekites, but not just to fight them, to go in and totally annihilate them. But of course, he doesn't do that. He he fails to do this, and he shows mercy to the Amalekite king. Agag takes him as prisoner. When Samuel the prophet discovers this, he's pretty upset and goes and confronts Saul. He's got some lame excuse why he didn't fully obey what God uh, told him to do. Samuel says, okay, grabs a knife, and then just goes to town and cuts and chops up King Agag into a bunch of pieces. And this really would become King Saul's downfall from this moment forward in 1 Samuel 15. But this military conquest of Agag and his army on the part of Israel is a huge part of Israel's tradition, which stands behind the scenes of the book of Esther. We're going to see this tension today between Mordecai and Haman, which you may remember Mordecai Last week when he shows up, he too is a Benjaminite. He too, like King Saul, is a descendant of Kish. And as we learn and discover this, we are reminded that the conflict that is brought forth here in chapter 3 is a conflict that has existed for centuries between two people. Verse 2, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down, pay homage. Haman is promoted to vice president, I suppose, if you want to label it. He is the number two man in Persia. And the narrator doesn't tell us why Mordecai doesn't bow down. And bowing down, you should know right now, it's, it isn't something that altogether would be avoided by the Jews. In fact, 
there's plenty of biblical examples in Israelite custom where, where they would where they would bow down, like Second Samuel fourteen four, eighteen twenty eight, First Kings one sixteen. However, the Persians saw it as an act of reverence that bordered on recognizing the official as divine. And there's certainly a layers of historical and political reasons why Mordecai would not have bowed down. The Targum, uh, interpretation, translation, Hebrew Bible, and Aramaic, the spoken language, uh, notes that no self-respecting Benjaminite would ever, ever show reverence to a descendant of the Amalekites. So he won't bow down. Verse 3, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he, he being Mordecai, had told them that he was a Jew. Certainly political, historical reasons for why they don't like each other, why he wouldn't bow down. But here it becomes very clear there is also a strong religious overtone why he wouldn't bow down because he had told them, I'm a Jew. Well, uh, this is not going to go over very well with Haman. Real shocker there. Verse 5, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. He is... He's pictured as... Not just the bad guy, but this man who is so proud, this very proud person. That's, that's Haman, someone who constantly just desired human praise. Gotta have it. And how dare, how dare Haman, how dare, I'm sure he's thinking, that guy Mordecai, how dare he not bow down to me? Does he not know who I am? Well, verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. The principal plot of the book is now introduced. Esther showed up, became queen, and it's not until now as to why she's become queen. Now the purpose for her ascending to the throne have been made very clear. There is a threat of all-out Jewish cleansing at stake. Why? Mordecai, he ticked off Haman. Wouldn't bow down. Okay, but why? If I could boil chapter 3 down to a sentence or two. This is what chapter 3 is about. Yes, it's Mordecai doesn't bow down to Haman, but in doing that, Mordecai identifies with the people of God. That's what chapter 3 is about. Like, if you remember anything, chapter 3 is the fact that Mordecai is going to identify with the people of God. And you should know, when one identifies as the people of God, hardship and persecution are not going to be very far off. Or have you not heard that it was said? Through many tribulations, one must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 22. 
In the first month, verse 7, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, we'll just pause real quick. My mind always works better when I can establish a timeline, chronological timeline. This is the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus. If you're joining us for the very first time, you probably know King Ahasuerus by his Greek name, Xerxes. If you're familiar with Persian history and the battle against the Greek city-states, the, the famous battle at Thermopylae where the 300 Greek Spartans and their Greek allies supposedly held off a million-man Persian army, Xerxes, same guy here, Ahasuerus. It's the twelfth year of his reign. Chapter 1 begins in the third year of his reign. Chapter 2, when Esther becomes queen, begins in the seventh year of his reign. Now it's been five years since Esther's been on the throne. A century after the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Sixty-four years after the first return of the exiles with Zerubbabel and sixteen years before Ezra's return. There are still obviously Jewish people living abroad in Persia. And so... In the twelfth year, it says, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is in the month of Adar. The Greek historian Herodotus, he spoke of the Persian custom of casting lots. So what Haman is doing is he is trying to figure out when would be a favorable day to execute his plan. There are thousands of ancient Mesopotamian texts that are omen texts. And the kings would decide, do we go to battle? When do we go to battle? If we go to battle at all, what's, what's the day? And so the first month, they're casting lots, trying to seek what would be the most opportune day to carry out Haman's evil plan, which would help explain why when it finally takes place is so much further down on the calendar, a much, much later date. Then, in verse 8, apparently once they have found the appropriate time, Haman said to the king, Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. There's this group of people and they're different. And they don't keep the king's laws. Notice he doesn't say who the group of people are. He doesn't even say what laws of the king that they don't keep. He just says it's not in our best interest to tolerate them. No tolerance there. The story... This story is about Mordecai, yes, not bowing down, but it's about Mordecai choosing to identify with the people of God. And when the people of God live by the Word of God, submit themselves wholly underneath the authority of God's Word, they're going to be different. And the world's not going to like it. They're going to be different from those who live by a different authority. Christians, if you're walking faithfully with God and you're submitting yourself to what God's Word says, people will not like that. They won't like that at all. 
Uh, they'll say things about you that aren't true and, well, beyond that as well, as we think about our brothers and sisters, as we pray for our brothers and sisters who are imprisoned and in chains every week. That's the reality. That's the world we live in. Well, he says this in verse 9. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents or 75 pounds of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may pay it into the king's treasuries. Essentially, he says, I am so committed to this, I will actually fund the operation. I will bankroll this whole thing. That's how, how committed I am to this, he tells the king. To have all these people eradicated. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. No doubt, despite the fact that Haman is willing to bankroll this entire operation, he stands to make a great deal of money back in the plundering of these people's property and homes. And the king signs off on it. The king gives him his signet ring, which really illustrates the fact that he essentially hands him a blank check, unlimited, unchecked authority he gives to Haman. And the problem with this is that some rulers end up giving authority to individuals without ever realizing the consequences. Right? You see the foreshadowing here, if you're familiar with this story. You give authority only later to realize the consequences from it. And as I said, it's very interesting, Haman never actually mentions who these people are. Now, I've been pretty hard on King Ahasuerus throughout this series. Uh, chapter 1, if I described his issue, he's very prideful in chapter 1. In chapter 2, Ahasuerus is very selfish. In chapter 3 here, he's just kind of apathetic. Certainly, leaders are going to have to delegate authority. Okay? You, the, the, within this Persian bureaucracy, it's got to happen. But the key to doing it successfully, the key to doing it successfully is in knowing who you're going to give the authority and the power to. And King Ahasuerus, for one reason or another, just doesn't really care. He wholeheartedly trusts someone that he should not trust. And uh, I think of, what, the great Ronald Reagan quote, right? Trust, but verify. Right? Trust, but verify. And I think of, and this isn't like a, a key point, just an observation in the text. Like, I think about the problem here. He just, whatever you think, Haman, you, you think that's a good idea? And he doesn't, doesn't ask any questions. And once again, I think you're in leadership. You've got to delegate. You, you have to at least trust, but you've got to verify. And I think, what should he have done? I think he should have probably asked some questions. You know, if someone comes and says, hey, I got this great idea. I want to eradicate entire, entire people group. You might think maybe to ask, who's the people group you want to eradicate? It just, it's one of those things when you kill off an entire people group, it usually tends to be rather permanent. That's why I think apathy maybe here really helps characterize Ahasuerus. Like he doesn't ask these questions. Oh, whatever you think is, is best. And, and whether it's apathy or laziness or, or, or maybe just his blindness to the whole situation, I think there's valid questions to ask here at this point. You might call him too trusting. I, I think there are 
important questions asked. Once again, this isn't a main point of, of the sermon today, but I can't help but think so many people, just a little practical application, when it comes to maybe something that would have been better here in this situation, I think of, and I know there's a lot of young single people in here, but I talk to people all the time, like, oh, I met this guy, I met this girl. Oh, and you know what I'm going to say. If anybody's come talk to me, I'm going to be like, oh, are, are they a Christian? Yes. I'll be like, oh, how do you know? Because they said they're a Christian. Okay, is there any evidence that they love Jesus, that they're walking with Jesus, that they are submitting to the authority of God's word? Because, oh, by the way, if you're walking faithfully with Jesus and submitting your lives under the authority of God's word, you're going to be different, right? That's what Haman sees. Oh, King Ahasuerus, there's this group of people, and they're just kind of weird, right? They, they kind of do their own thing. They've got their own law. How wonderful. How wonderful when that actually characterizes people who claim the name of Christ. It really is. Well, it says this in verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, and to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province and its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. It is no small irony that the day that this plan is to be executed is on the 13th day of the first month, for it is the 14th day of the first month that the people of Israel celebrate and remember Passover, in which God delivered them from Egypt, in which God delivered them out of the hands of Pharaoh, in which God delivered them from slavery. And, and now the, the day before they are to, to celebrate Passover, they are scheduled to be terminated. And the story ends and a very different response between Haman and the king and all the people there in Susa. They are thrown into confusion. No doubt, this is a little worrisome, even if you're not Jewish. And the reason this is worrisome, even if you're not Jewish, is because if this can happen to somebody, if this can happen to another person, it could happen to you. This is a, kind of a really terrifying thing, even for the people who are not ethnically Jewish in this story. And at the end of this story, we are reminded of what chapter 3 is all about. If you're going to identify like Mordecai with the people of God, if you're going like Mordecai to refuse to bow down to the 
dare I say, cultural norms, then don't be surprised if people hate you, Christian. In fact, Jesus himself says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it ever hated you. So it raises the question, what are you supposed to do when you find yourself in a situation? When you find yourself in a situation in which you are commanded to act in a way that violates the law of God. What's that? What Haman tells Ahasuerus, these people have got their own law, they're doing their kind of thing, they're weird, they're strange, it doesn't benefit the king to tolerate them. So what are we supposed to do in those moments? I think it was uh, two weeks ago, it was about two weeks ago, they had the Oh, the Democratic town hall debate, specifically the, the, the theme was LGBTQIA plus issues. The question was brought up to the candidates. Do you think religious organizations should lose their tax-exempt status if they discriminate against LGBTQIA plus individuals? That's the question. And... Uh, should they lose their, their tax-exempt status, religious organizations, if they discriminate? And keep in mind, not that I want to go into the weeds here, but when it comes to tax-exempt status of, of churches or religious organizations, oftentimes, and you may have experienced this, and you're talking to someone, and they're like, that's just ridiculous, there's separation of church and state, you know, the church should not get that type of benefit. Um, the church, religious organizations, are not the only ones that do get those benefits. Planned Parenthood, okay? Um, the American, American Association of Atheists, all tax-exempt organizations. In case you think, when, when people criticize this point, oh, it's only churches, only religious organizations. But then it brings up the question is, is well, what does that even mean to discriminate? What, is, what does that mean? Does that, does that mean if Pastor Joe says that he can't do a wedding for a same-sex couple, right, because that's not a real marriage, he would be lying to that fact. Does that mean that he's discriminating? Or if there's a school, and I don't know, Christian school, Catholic school, Muslim school, and they only want to hire, crazy, I know, Muslim school, maybe they only want to hire other Muslims who hold to a Muslim worldview. Are they discriminating if they refuse to hire someone? It's LGBTQIA+. Those are real questions. Right? And so this idea of tolerance comes up a lot in our culture. And, and usually how it's framed is like that. Like, well, of course we'd never... That's wrong to discriminate against anybody. That's how it's framed, right? Even the nature of how the question's framed isn't very clear or fair because really what's at stake here is the idea that you should tolerate what I believe. And if you don't tolerate and, oh, by the way, affirm what I believe, you're a bigot. Or you're being intolerant for not tolerating and affirming my worldview. But that's the question, right? So that was the question. And then, first up to bat, Mr. Beto O'Rourke. And I'm, I'm a big fan of Beto O'Rourke because, hear me out. Hear me out. Don't get up and leave. I'm listening to Al Mohler in the briefing. He said, you know, it was amazing because he's like, 
He didn't pause. He didn't question this. He just said, yes, absolutely I would. And he said, to that point, he is so honest. You know, politicians often give these, you know, just, oh, well, you know, here's the thing. He's just like, absolutely I would. And I think there's just something about the, how refreshing it is, how brutally honest he was in saying what every other candidate on that stage actually believed. It was kind of refreshing, right? Haman kind of beats around the bush. There's this group of people, ah, you don't even need to know. They break the law, you don't need to know, right? And you say, Joe, that's all. If you're trying to draw a parallel here, you're way off there. Because we got people, right, set to be killed, and you're talking about money. You're talking about a tax-exempt status. Fair enough. But we know this isn't the last time that the people of God would try to be eradicated. I'm sure some of you guys are familiar with what took place in the 1930s, 1940s, under Nazi Germany, under occupied Poland. First, it's, listen, here's the thing, right? We just want you guys to wear identification badges. That's it, right? Star of David, we'll hook you guys up. That's it. I mean, it's just a badge. It's just a tax-exempt status. That's all. And then it's, oh, excuse me, what are you guys doing? You, you guys can't sit here. You guys aren't allowed in this restaurant, okay? You guys are going to this park? You guys can't go to this park. Sorry, it's off limits. All right, it's a badge on my shoulder. It's, some social places are off limits. It's, oh, you guys are showing up to work? Yeah, you guys, you guys, let me see your papers. You guys aren't allowed to work here anymore. There, there are certain jobs that you can work. You guys live over in that block? All right, we're actually relocating all of you back to the ghetto. That's what we're doing with you. And then, of course, you know what happens shortly after that. Then they're put on train cars and sent to Auschwitz and Dachau. Not the first time the people of God have come under attack. And it raises the question, how should we respond today? And I'll tell you right now, in the months and the years to come, this question will become that much more real for every true follower of Christ. It will. And they will have to make a decision. Do I bow down to the cultural norms? Or do I not? You've got a real Mordecai, Haman-type decisions to make in the future. What will we do? How should we respond? I think perhaps the greatest illustration of the right answer comes in another very similar example. So many examples like this, and I'm so thankful. I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They've got a choice. Do we bow down to the statue, or do we risk being thrown into the fiery furnace? And what do they say? Listen, we can't bow down. And if you throw us into the fiery furnace... Our God, He can save us. And even if He doesn't, we're still not bowing down. It's not happening. I'd love to tell you that these aren't things we really need to think about or worry about in our lifetime. But the reality is, I think it's the calm before the storm, fellow Christians. This is the calm before the storm. That's what chapter 3 is about. Chapter 3 is about, yeah, it's, Mordecai doesn't bow down, but it's Mordecai's decision to identify with the people of God. And if you are going to identify Christian with the people of God and say, faithful and true to King Jesus, 
You will come under hardship. The world will hate you more and more and more. And that's the reality. And so we're facing a choice. Just like last week in Dallas. Not Boston, Dallas. Not, not San Francisco, Dallas. Where a father was overruled by a court, 11 to 12, that his 7-year-old boy would be forced to undergo transgender therapy, hormone-blocking stuff, and eventually in the next year or two actually have his genitalia castrated. Because that's what his mom wanted to do. And the dad's like, this is child abuse. This is sexual abuse. And the court says, sorry. Mom wins this. Go sit down. It's Dallas. It's not New York or Boston or San Francisco. That's Dallas. If you live by the word of God, by the law of God, if you walk faithfully, with the Lord through many tribulations one must enter the kingdom of God and and my goal in sharing this text today is that we would think good and hard about these issues and these things that we might be prepared it's not easy but this sermon is more than alright well let's look at Mordecai he is so courageous let's be courageous let's be like Mordecai (sighs) trust me if you're going to try to you know, pump yourself up and be like Mordecai, you'll come crashing down sooner or later. It is no small irony that the execution order comes the day before Passover where the people of God remember what God did for them in delivering them out of the hands of Pharaoh, in delivering them out of slavery, in delivering them out of Egypt. No small irony. What an encouraging thought as they face the execution orders, the day before they celebrate Passover, where they remembered how God had saved them before. And we think of Daniel and how God delivered him. We think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how God delivered them. That's my hope and prayer. It's not be like Mordecai, just be courageous, pump yourself up. It's that our courage might be firmly rooted in who God is. As time and time again he has shown himself faithful and true to his people. That we might have a response like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We will not bow down. And our God can save us. And even if he doesn't save us, we're still not bowing down. Because there is one true king. And it is not you, Ahasuerus. Because as Christians, not only do we have a different law, but we serve the divine king. And that should pump you up and encourage you when you face difficult situations in the months and years to come. When you're faced with, do I bow down or do I not? To remember, you know what? I can. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? What, they kill you? What does Jesus say? Do not fear him who has the power to take your life. Fear him who has the power not only to take your life and then cast your soul into hell. That's who you should fear. Worst case scenario, they take your life. No big deal, right? Because of who, who our king is that we serve. Right? He's the one that tells the dead man Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth and the dead man rises. That should give you courage. That should give you hope. It kind of sounds like a little bit of a bleak message. But it's not. No small irony this occurs the day before Passover begins. I'm sure that would have been a great encouragement for the people as they remembered, hold on guys, 
Look what he's done. Look what he's done for us in the past. Oh, that we all might stay faithful and true like Mordecai as we remember and recall who our God is. He is the one who saves. Be encouraged, my brothers and sisters. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Lord, uh, kind of a bleak story on the surface, and yet encouraging as we're reminded, Lord, how you have delivered your people time and time again from the jaws of death, from Pharaoh, from the lion's den, from the fiery furnace, and as we'll see in a few short weeks, from the villain tyrant Haman. Lord, I pray that our courage and our boldness to live a faithful life under the complete authority of your word will be increased because of our understanding of who our God is. The psalmist says, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Lord, may we fear you and not man. Lord, may we fear you and care more about what you think than what the world thinks, Jesus. Help us, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. Hard, really hard, Lord. So help us. We pray this in your name. Amen.